Welcome back to the 168th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including what's going to happen now that McCarthy is gone, why are progressive movements actually so elitist, and is Glenn Youngkin the savior the Republicans are looking for in the presidential election? And of course, we will end today with our Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So if you were to get fired from your job and say this is the job that you really coveted, that you fought really hard for, but you lost it anyway, what what would you do at that time? Would you take a few minutes to relax? Would you maybe read a couple of books? Or would you get straight back into another job? I'd love to hear what everybody has to say. And of course, if you are paying attention to what's going on in Washington, then you probably have some idea of what I'm trying to reference here, which is Kevin McCarthy is on his way out. Or at this point, he's already gone. So what's the McCarthy fallout going to look like? This one comes from the National Review, and it's our first article for today. So what is the vacancy going to actually do? What does it mean for the current system in Washington, in the House, and is there a path forward that will actually work well for Republicans, or is it going to be an even more of a cluster, so to speak? Quote, on Tuesday afternoon, after the clerk of the House of Representatives gaveled shut the vote to oust Kevin McCarthy and announced that, quote, the office of Speaker of the House of the United States of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. A member on the Democratic side of the aisle loudly asked the question on everybody's mind. What now? A simple majority of House members, eight Republicans plus 208 Democrats present, had taken the historic step of booting a sitting speaker. And they had no idea who would replace him or what the consequences of their vote might be, but in rapid succession, they did learn a few different things. End quote. So, obviously, Matt Gates and the people that voted McCarthy out didn't necessarily have someone that they were posing, proposing to fill the spot immediately. Since the time that this article has come out and since the initial vacancy of the office. We've had people like Jim Jordan, Steve Scalise, uh, been floated as possible members of the House that would be willing to step up and take on the challenge of being Speaker. We also have the current gentleman, uh, Henry. I forget his last name, and I am extremely sorry about that, sir. But he is the acting House Speaker. And I listened to a podcast this morning while I was working out that spoke about how he actually may be a dark horse candidate, how he has built lots of different relationships all across the multiple caucuses in the House of Representatives and how he could retain the speakership. So there are a few options going forward, but Gates didn't necessarily propose one from the very beginning. Marjorie Taylor Greene said that they should put Trump in there. And it's just this chaos. We've already been through it. It's been less than a year since we had this battle in the first place, and now we're going to have this exact same thing over again with, I believe it's 39 days, uh, the release of this video, I believe it will be 38 days, until the government shutdown is over everybody's head again, so it just feels like we want chaos right now in the House, and it's really frustrating to see the Congress, you know, the House of Representatives, 
in the current state that it's in, especially when it's caused by eight people. It's not as though a majority of Republicans wanted McCarthy gone. It was caused by eight people who crossed the line and said that we want him out. And while I understand it's politics and they're trying to use any sort of leverage they can in order to get concessions from McCarthy or even show that they have enough power to do this again next time that a Speaker of the House comes up and they want to use that leverage to say, hey, you better do, you better align with us. Otherwise, we're going to do exactly to you what we did to McCarthy. It's extremely sad. I don't want to live in a United States where we're constantly having these sort of fights. I want to have parties that are going to work together. I mean, Ben Shapiro always says that parties are a vehicle for winning. And when there's infighting like this, you cannot win, which also means that the American people lose. That's what I think is lost here by people who are against Kevin McCarthy or people who are on the Democratic side kind of laughing and jeering and saying, oh, look at the Republicans doing their dumb stuff. Well, guess what? If the Republicans can't be united, if they can't all vote together, and there's going to have to be caucuses upon caucuses in order to get certain segments of that Republican Party's votes, it's going to take longer to get certain bills through. You may not even have the approval to get certain bills through, appropriation bills, uh, maybe a government shutdown proposal that would actually you know, increase funding or keep funding going at current rates. Maybe that's not even possible, which guess who that hurts? The American people. Now, am I saying that a government shutdown is the end of the world? No. But if this kind of turmoil persists beyond this year, if this is how things will roll from now on, which is a small minority of the party will break from the larger segment in order to exert their will on the political process there in Washington, that's great. We, hopefully you are representing your people well. But if you can't ever get anything done because of it, and if you just keep ousting the person who's supposed to be in charge and helping you get some of these key issues that your constituents care about, guess who that hurts? The people. If the Democrats can't make a bipartisan agreement with the Republicans in the House because they are so fractiously divided, that is not good. Guess who also gets hurt? The Democratic voters. So this sort of chaos only serves two people. It serves those who want complete stagnation and no movement by government, which there are some people and constituents out there who like that idea. And there, it also aids the people who want to get media attention for doing something as ruckus as this, such as, guess who I'm going to say, Matt Gates, who loves, loves his attention that he gets in the media trying to build up his national profile. So who is the temporary speaker? And I'm sorry, I got it wrong. He's not Henry something. It's Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. And Kevin McCarthy, he was the one who named him as the deputy, the trusted temp speaker, if he was to be put out, quote, to serve as speaker pro tempore in the event that the speakership was vacated, which means McHenry will serve as speaker until a true replacement is elected. McCarthy announced at a press conference that he would not try to recapture the job he had just lost and was noncommittal when asked if he would remain in Congress. At a press conference, a law, a loose and chatty McCarthy was happy to settle scores. He claimed that Nancy Pelosi had privately assured him that she would have his back if a motion to vacate ever came up 
because she thought opposing the measure was important in order to protect the institution. One of the Speaker pro tempore McHenry's first official actions was to kick Pelosi out of her office in the Capitol, end quote. And this is also deeply, deeply ironic, and it speaks to the dysfunction of what, or the dysfunction that I was describing just a second ago. Not only are the Democrats turning on the people that they made promises to, apparently, uh, you know, this is probably closed-door meetings. We don't have a quote or a signed statement from Nancy Pelosi saying that she would 100% back McCarthy, something like this came up. But when you make promises like that to protect the institution, and then also you have somebody who's coming in as the tempore speaker, pro-tempore speaker, and kicking Pelosi out just to be you know, political in nature, just to score points, just like Matt Gates did, this is all more chaos. It does no good for the people of the United States. I've said it three, four times already, but it really doesn't. It's not going to get us anywhere. So when you have this sort of back and forth within one party or when you have a backstabbing between one party or another, when the promise was to protect the institution, these things are just politics, politics, politics. And yes, I know, we're in the game of politics. That's exactly what the House is. But can we not rise above it? Can we not be better than this? Can we not have faith in our institutions to work a particular way? Because this is something else that speaks to the chaos that I mentioned. And then guess what is bred of that chaos? Guess what comes out of that chaos when people are watching the TV, seeing this happening? They are saying, one... Oh, these are just ordinary people with vendettas like everybody else, which, while it is true, and you shouldn't necessarily idolize anybody in government, we should see them as the best of us, not just anybody else, because then you have no reverence for the office that you're putting people into. But also, it just breaks the trust of the American people. If you elect somebody to get a job done in order to help you and your constituents to speak about the issues that you care about, and all they do is play a political game when they get up there. We lose faith in our institutions. And I think this is why a lot of American people are jaded about the process in general. This is why Trump came up the way he did. He took advantage of social media and being a star and also spoke to the part of Americans that see what's going on in Washington and understand how stupid the game is there. And if we're not going to see another more populist movement here in the next few years, I, I wouldn't, you know, I would be surprised if we don't. I'll put it that way. Because when you see stuff like this, what other conclusion can you come to besides, oh, wow, the people that are going to serve, the people that we have put in power, the ones that we have entrusted, they're just letting us down. And they always will let us down because they can't get past their petty grievances, they can't be higher, they can't respect the institution, and if they can't respect the institution, then why should we? But there were a few surprises that came out of this whole McCarthy situation, and I think there's an interesting quote towards the end of this article that I want to highlight. Quote, perhaps the most surprising GOP vote to oust McCarthy came from the self-styled moderate Nancy Mace of South Carolina. Speaking to the reporters outside the Capitol, Mace said that she was upset McCarthy had not voted 
on all 12 appropriation bills and accused him of breaking promises to hold votes on bills she'd introduced, such as a measure to help clear a backlog of rape kits and another bill to make it easier for the FDA to approve different forms of contraceptive for over-the-counter use. Mace also seemed miffed that, quote, the speaker decided to call my staff yesterday rather than call me. At this press conference, McCarthy said, t- said to reporters that they would need to wait for the book to get his thoughts about Mace. But then he proceeded to divulge that her chief of staff had told him that McCarthy had always kept his word. End quote. So why is this a surprise? A lot of people wouldn't see Nancy Mace turning on Kevin McCarthy. That was something that people did not see coming, obviously, because it's in this article as a surprise. But if you would talk to a lot of people who are at least tuned in a little bit, Nancy Mace has been, you know, towing, not towing the line, but has been on the side of McCarthy in some of the previous votes, you know, with the assurance that some of her important bills would be brought up on the floor. And people, when they hear this, they're saying, oh, wow, okay, Nancy turned on him. But I think this is another example of promises made and promises not kept. And whether I agree or not with the 100% argument that Matt Gates is throwing out there that McCarthy made promises, this also speaks to the chaos in Washington because if you make promises when you are being put in power as the Speaker of the House and you are relying on those people that you make promises to, guess what happens if you don't keep your promises? You're going to get ousted. And if you can't keep your promises to your fellow members in Congress, what because they actually have direct power over you, they can actually influence whether or not you're going to be speaker in the future. What makes anyone outside of Washington certain that you'll keep the promises you made to them? And this is a long-time problem in politics. They, every politician makes promises, sometimes that they can't you know, fulfill. And now it's just coming back to bite them a little bit more, and it just once again shows that why would we trust you if you don't keep promises? Why would the citizens care about those promises or those speaking points, the talking points about how you're going to help them if you can't keep your promises? Because, hey, I mean, you're just talking into the air. You're just saying what people want to hear rather than being a trustworthy person. Do I agree with all the criticisms that McCarthy didn't keep his promises? No. But that doesn't matter because the public perception is going to be that he didn't keep his promises, which once again will cause a little bit more jading in the population that puts these people into power. But that's enough ranting on that one. You've heard plenty of commentary about that throughout the course of the week. Let's jump to our second article that comes from the Washington Examiner. Why are progressive movements so elitist? So when I first read this headline, I was like, whoa, whoa, what? That's actually the exact opposite of what a progressive movement should be. That's exactly the opposite of what progressive movements claim to be. They claim to be for the working people, for the populace, not the elect, the elitists, not the people wielding power as they so wish. So I thought it was a really, really interesting article, and I want to dive into it a little bit, critique it in some places, you know, agree with it in others. Quote, The New York Times recently ran an article titled The Failure of Progressive Movements, which tried to identify why recent fads such as Occupy Wall Street, Hashtag Me Too, and Black Lives Matter failed to ignite meaningful change. One explanation offered is that as commentator Frederick 
De Boer puts it, Today, left activist spaces are dominated by college-educated, many of whom grew up in affluence and have never worked a day at physical or emotionally demanding jobs. As such, these movements prioritize the immaterial and the symbolic over the material and the concrete. It's not hard to see this in action. Modern progressive movements, including Black Lives Matter and much of the diversity, equity, and inclusion industry, seem woefully out of touch with ordinary people. A big focus in recent years has been rebranding Latino into a more gender-neutral Latinx, in spite of the fact that only 2% of Hispanics use the term to define themselves, and an outstanding 40% find it offensive, end quote. And I thought this was something that actually resonated a little bit, because you see a lot of people coming out of college, not necessarily knowing what to do with their life, and they've spent this time in a you know liberal arts education, gaining some of the more, I don't want to say liberal talking points because there are plenty of college students who don't come out liberalized, but a lot of them have been told about these injustices that have been perpetuated on people that are less fortunate than them who haven't been able to make it to college, and they feel, maybe they feel a little bit guilty. Maybe they feel as though because they're educated, they can actually make a change in the world, so they go out and they become activists. But because they're not directly affected, some people are, but a lot of them were not directly affected. They were actually fortunate enough to get a college education to feel the benefits of the meritocratic system, and they were able to move up. They feel guilty for the people that aren't, so therefore they want to go help them. But once again, because they are the ones that benefited from it, it's really symbolic They don't necessarily know exactly what it is like to be in those situations. So they fight for things that are very superficial on the surface. They don't necessarily create real everlasting momentum or change. And let's be clear, I'm not saying Black Lives Matter or Me Too or Occupy Wall Street didn't change things. I mean, I think, honestly, Occupy changed a lot. For my generation, Gen Z, seeing that and then learning more about it as we got older, I do think there is a kind of disdain or distrust of larger Wall Street companies or you know big tech companies because of the Occupy movement. I think that we are more hypervigilant about certain cases of um, rape or abuse on college campuses or across our society because of Me Too. And I do feel as though a lot of people are more aware of some of the problems that the black community has faced over the course of our history in America. I think all of those things are true. These movements have done something, but why have they fizzled out? Why haven't they metastasized and created actual institutional change rather than, oh, let's cancel this police department in Minnesota for six months. Oh, and then, you know, six months later, we actually start refunding it a little bit or the pushback from Me Too now that people are even more skeptical because some people took advantage of the Me Too movement in order to propagate false claims. And now certain segments of the population are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, that's a bold accusation. I would love to believe all women, but we've seen how this has not necessarily all the time been genuine, how there have been disingenuous claims in the past that have hurt people. Or with Occupy Wall Street, I don't think there is is as much of a pushback against that one except from larger corporations. But even then, I think the populace is pretty much on the same page on that one. So I think out of the three, that is 
one of the most effective. And I also think it's really effective because it wasn't just college kids who were there occupying Wall Street. It was everybody. It was, you know, people who saw that the banks were getting bailed out after 2008 and were outraged about it. It wasn't just right or left. It was everybody. And I think that is one reason that that movement had a more lasting impact than the other two, because the other two seemed to really come down on some pretty political lines. At least they were characterized that way. So maybe that's part of it. And I think the examiner would have a little bit of a a different point of view about why they haven't last as it was trying to outline here in the first one. So let's dive into the second quote that I have from this article that goes into a little bit more detail about why they believe it is more elitist. Quote, much of the modern DEI discussion centers on people with immense privilege, for example, microaggressions towards highly successful musicians of color. What's driving this disconnect? For one thing, the progressives who lead and support these movements tend to be overwhelmingly wealthy and white. One study found that progressive activists are 80% white, the country as a whole is 69% white, and only 3% African American. These activists are also twice as likely to have completed college as the average person in America, more likely than members of any other political group to earn over $100,000 per year and less than half as likely to as the average resident to be poor. Many of these activists are privileged to distance themselves from the actual minorities and poor residents that they want to help. Taylor Austin Harper, a professor at Bates College and a frequent anti-racist commentator, argues that rich progressives use multiracial books and toys to introduce commodified diversity into the lives of kids whose worlds have been systematically scrubbed of actual racial diversity by dint of where their parents choose to live and send them to school, end quote. So this is a very, really... I don't want to say deep, but there's a lot going on here in this article. One, the activists who are out there on the ground are overwhelmingly of one segment of the population, and they are not you know, demographically representative of the rest of the country. And also, they are, tend to be from a certain class of people who are able to actually spend a little bit more time doing activism because they're making a good chunk of change and they're not worried about surviving. So maybe that's why they tend to be a little bit more elitist. It's not that the people who can't afford to go out there and talk about these issues don't want to. It's just that they're focused on surviving. So the people who do have the money, who have a little bit of spare time because of how their job is structured, who have a good benefit structure so they can actually take a little bit of time off in order to go support some of these movements, maybe they're the only ones that can speak out against it. I think that could be a legitimate way to frame it rather than just saying that the certain segment of the population that are activists are blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's because the way that you have to be an activist is to be secure in other means in order to spend time probably not making money being an activist out there on the ground. So I think that could be a reframing of that paragraph on the behalf of the Washington Examiner. But I do think it also speaks to the fact that the people who are out there being activists, they're speaking for other people. And while it, you know, it's a great thing to try to push for issues of a certain community that do, are not as heard sometimes, 
It also means that you don't necessarily have that direct perspective to relay the message. Now, does that mean just because you're not of that certain population that you can't relay that message? No. I mean, I can speak about what's going on in different communities without having to be a part of that community, but will it resonate as much? Will it have as much effect? Will it actually tear at the hearts of people in order to cause change? Probably not, because you're speaking on somebody else's behalf rather than hearing the story directly from that person. So maybe that's why these movements are also starting to peter out. And I'm not saying that these people aren't trying to do noble things. I don't want to, some people on the more right side or the conservative side want to ascribe malice to some of them. I think that a lot of these people who are out there being activists, who have the spare time to do it, who are college educated, they genuinely believe why they're out there, but they're not do- going about it the right way. They are just speaking into the ether and talking to more people who are just like them rather than building from the grassroots and finding the people in the communities who are being hurt and elevating them to spread the message and talk about these issues. I think that would be a more effective way of going about it. But that is just me. So let's jump to our final article that comes from The Daily Beast. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin can't save the GOP from Trump. So there has been talk recently about, oh, maybe Glenn Youngkin will jump into the race. Maybe he will be the one that can defeat Trump with all these you know, primary debates going on and nobody really busting through and coming out on top. You know, DeSantis, Haley, Vivek, Tim Scott, Pence, they're all just sitting down there. They're not making much headway. And some of them are even lowering in the polls compared to Trump. So there's been the idea that, hey, Glenn Youngkin, the governor of my former state, Virginia, Let's go up there. Let's put him out on the national stage. He is ready for prime time. And I have to disagree. It's not that I don't love Glenn Youngkin. It's not that I don't think he could be a great president if he wanted to be. My argument is that he hasn't built enough of the, one, national coalition in order to win, two, enough to even beat Trump, and three, The reason he's a good governor in Virginia is because you don't necessarily feel much policy change in your life. You don't directly feel the government encroaching upon you as a citizen of Virginia. So while that is something beautiful, and while Virginians probably like that, it's hard to ascribe not doing something to the governor. It's hard to give him credit for not doing something in a political sphere. Normally, governors get credit for the things they do actively, and Yunkin has brought you the Virginia back into a surplus, which is great. That's one thing he's done, but he's done that by stopping doing other things. So it's hard to really tout that to a lot of people because you need policy achievements, like a lot of the stuff that John Ron DeSantis was doing in Florida in order to hold that little treat in front of the populace and say, hey, look at, look at what I did here. Look at this bill I got passed. But why is... Governor Yunkin being thrown out there by some of the talking heads and some of the donor class. Quote, with Donald Trump continuing to dominate the 2024 Republican primary field, some Republicans are praying a new savior will rise from these streets. This week's savior is Virginia Governor Glenn Yunkin. In August, then Fox News and News Corp boss Rupert Murdoch was encouraging him to run. But in the wake of another sad GOP primary debate, quote, fantasy talk of an audacious break-the-glass moment has morphed into a not-so-quiet 
consternation, writes CBS News' Robert Costa. So this is, you know, there's sentiment. The donors, the big head, the big boys in the party want him to run. He's a little bit of a moderate. He has some ties to Wall Street, so he's a little bit more empathetic to that side of the aisle. He's very pro-business, and, you know, he is a little bit popular. He hit the right note with some of the social issues. He kind of made it the focus towards the end of his campaign, but that's not all he cares about. He wants the government that he's running to be in a surplus. Maybe he could get budgetary issues under control in Washington. That's the hope, even though it's really hard to do because at the end of the day, people just want, want, want here in America nowadays, so it's going to be hard to cut the programs that would be necessary to cut in order to balance the budget. But the people in the, you know, the talking heads, they, they threw it out there. But why is this not going to work? Quote, Desperate non-Trumpy Republican donors and activists haven't reached the acceptance phase of Trump's inevitable nomination, although they have accepted the fact that nobody currently in the GOP field can beat him. Instead, they were entering this deus ex machina stage. The sort of denial seems to happen every four years. In September 2003, General Wesley Clark entered the Democratic primary after a few months of fanfare. As the New Yorker noted, quote, Clark was what Bill Clinton had reportedly declared him to be, the only Democrat besides Hillary Clinton who qualified as a true political star. After being wooed by a draft Clark movement, the star fell precipitously. He dropped out of the race before Valentine's Day in 2004, end quote. And the article goes on to list a whole bunch of these other star candidates who should come in from the wings and then they have to exit because the political reality doesn't change. And I'm sorry, Glenn Youngkin, this ain't your time. DeSantis is probably going to run in the next election if Trump gets through this time. And I would say you stick out of that one too. Maybe you find a way to stay politically relevant for a while and then you run after that. But even then, maybe you should just stay on the governor level. Maybe you are cut out to be a great governor and you shouldn't go any further than that. I don't know if people necessarily agree with me. But I think at the end of the day, he's doing a great job where he is. So let's make sure that you know, he stays where he is. He does his thing. And maybe in the future, you can worry about a presidential nomination. I think that's exactly where Glenn Youngkin is, too. If he puts his name into the hat this time, I don't think he actually thinks he can win. I think he wants to do it so he can build his name recognition for the next time he goes for president. That's just my opinion on that one. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Laughing Squid. Quote, a pair of abandoned lands adopt their rescuer as their mommy. So you know how the saying goes, mother comes in, mothers come in all different shapes and sizes. And this story really takes it to a new level. Quote, a pair of lambs who were sadly abandoned by their mother were taken in by St. Bean's Animal Sanctuary for Lambs in New Zealand. And before long, the adorable pair imprinted upon founder Brennan and thought of him as their mommy, end quote. And, you know, though they were faced with a very difficult situation, the lambs, they really persevered, and they're really having a good time now. Quote, the lambs began thriving shortly after the rescue. Now that they feel safe, they've gotten a little insistent about mealtime. Before long, they were kind of the boss of me, really. Once they get their confidence and they trust you, 
they start to get their feeding schedule pretty memorized, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos of these guys at the sanctuary or you want to read any of today's articles, there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine, and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. All right, with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.